I told you before that I wanted to spend just this little time with him, with the inside voice, after going for so long listening to the outside voice of his parables, I didn't start at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, wasn't uh, prepared really to do an entire series on the Sermon on the Mount, so we didn't spend any time in the Beatitudes, and I've hinted to them that you begin this entire thing on how we walk, beginning with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are about nine of them, and they all begin the same way. Blessed are they who, because Beatitude means blessing. So I wanted to share with you that in Hebrew thought, biblical thought, Hebrew thought and walk with the living God and living with him on the inside voice, sitting inside with Jesus, actually teaching those of us who claim to believe in him, who claim to be his disciples, that the walk with him is the way that it's always been in Hebrew thought. All through the history of Israel, all through the history, pretty much all the way back to the garden. And it is separated into two, I mean, it is not separated. It, it comes with two, two, though, inseparable concepts. And in Hebrew, it's called the Haggadah, or the study. Okay. Um, when you're at a Passover Seder, the head of the household is reading from a Haggadah, okay, which is the book, it's the narrative, it's the Bible part that, we, that is shared as you take part in this. So the Haggadah is the study, it's the concepts, it's, it's what we look at, it's the word, it's studying the word. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to sign on for that, to be a disciple of God a, and walk with the living God, then you have to become acquainted with the halakha, or the walk. And the walk is the application. It's how we apply. It's the applications of how we apply our study and our concepts and who, who God is and how we approach him. And it's how we apply it in all of our relationships with all of our neighbors, if you will. A disciple's walk has always been designed the same. Our relationship with Jesus is directly correlated into a relationship with others. The only way that love can be lived within you and me is we have to have someone else to love. The commandments contain the, two, the same twofold division that Jesus will give the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. The first four commandments all have to do with the relationship with God, with the fourth commandment actually being a hinge as a vertical and a horizontal concept. Remember the Sabbath, it's his Sabbath, but the Sabbath also has something to do with here on earth. We rest, we seek to do good. So the fourth commandment is really the only one that has both of them. But for the most part, it's the same twofold division. First four commandments have to do with him, while the next six is how we treat others, beginning with who probably is the closest in our lives and working our way out. It isn't by coincidence that Jesus is delivering this sermon on a mount, on a mountain. Moses comes down from Sinai and gives the Ten Commandments. Jesus comes down on this mount and gives, well, the nine Beatitudes. So it doesn't correlate exactly. But remember, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said the fulfillment of all ten was to what? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So when we get here and the further that we hear, the further that you go through the sermon, the first, the first five Beatitudes we, we love to study, we love to talk about, we love to imagine what they are. But the further you get along, the more he continues in the sermon. The longer we walk with Jesus on the inside, I have to say the harder it is to hear him because the harder it is to apply. So if you look at the first uh, Beatitudes, the Haggadah, this, the concepts is how you and I approach God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who are merciful and pure in heart. These are all concepts. These are all things that we think about that we would like our heart to be. So the first Beatitudes, how is it that we approach God? 
We approach God in a state of need. People need the Lord, Pat. We need everything that he offers. Beginning with a spiritual life, we have nothing spiritual about us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then to move on after that. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who come to God in need and he fills every one of those. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. So comfort, being filled with the Spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He mercifully gives us all of those when we ask. So we then become what? We then become merciful ourselves. And to approach it pure in heart. The next Beatitudes, though, like I said, it gets a little tougher. How is it I'm to live these concepts out? How is it that my Agadah will take me to my Halakha? How am I to walk? Well, we walk among this earth first and foremost as what? As peacemakers. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. We are salt. We are a city on a hill. We are light. We're glorifiers of God. And we do it all with a pure what? With a pure heart. I told you it doesn't get any easier to listen to, does it? See, when we began, we were told that this uh, inside voice, the halakha, what it would look like, what we are to strive to do. What does it mean when we looked at that scripture reading a couple weeks ago, um, uh, to be born again? It was summarized this way. It says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself. We have been unreconciled after the fall. As sinners, we have been his enemies. We have been reconciled to him through Christ And in turn, Christ has given us the ministry of what? Of reconciliation. So we are then called to that ministry. We are to tell others or reconcile others to God as he has done for us. So of our walk, of our halakha, the inside voice, these beatitudes, there seems to be one that we begin with that has particularly, I guess, a bent towards reconciliation. If any one of those beatitudes of our walk uh, is, uh, has to do with reconciliation, it's that first one we looked at. Blessed are the what? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And every time I come to this one, I always point out, notice he didn't say peacekeepers. You don't keep peace. You what? You make it. There's a big difference. In this world, there is a huge difference. This implies that there is peace to be made. Why? Why is it that there's peace to be made in our walk? Do we live on a peaceful planet? Is this kingdom a peaceful kingdom? Now, granted, you and I are citizens of another kingdom, but we have dual citizenship. We are citizens of this kingdom, too. And of the two kingdoms, which one inherently has peace? The kingdom of heaven. We don't have peace here, do we? So in order to have peace, there has to be one particular group of people who are interested or bent towards or given a ministry of what? Of peacekeeping, reconciling. It's sorely needed here, and we're called to do so. See, we live in an inherently violent world. It's ruled by evolutionary DNA. This world says those who survive are the fittest. Survival of the fittest. Survival of the strongest. Might makes right. See, but to begin with, when we approached God, we didn't approach God with any sort of might, did we? We approached God in a state of need. There's nothing mighty about us. We're not rich in spirit, we're poor in spirit. We mourn, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, if you're called to be a peacemaker, the very first thing that Jesus brings up is, how are you going to act, peacemaker? What are you going to do, peacemaker, when this world, in its inherent violence, punches you in the mouth? What are we going to settle for? What will be our standard of righteousness? 
a standard of righteousness based on the letter of the law? Are we, will we merely be satisfied with keeping the commandments, keeping the commandments or the precepts or the law, or will we be satisfied in fulfilling them in love? Jesus says this, you've heard it said that it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but what I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, do what? Turn the other also. Standard of the law says that you're allowed to what? Retaliate. You're allowed to retaliate. Eye for an eye. Standard of the law. As long as you retaliate in kind. I used to think that the, we, we used to try to make the, the uh, eye for an eye look more like the beatitude, but maybe not go quite that far. And we used to say that the reason they wrote that law was only so that you wouldn't take your vengeance out on somebody, that you would only retaliate in kind. That was the law. That's what made it sound quieter. On paper, on paper though, all it did was what? All it did was exact what was taken. Are the two parties reconciled though? On paper? No. We're now just each both short one eye. And the law doesn't provide for anything after that, right? It doesn't tell us to do anything about it. It doesn't go near where? It doesn't go near the heart. Not near the heart at all. Not even close. Violence does not work that way. And Jesus knows it. So you and I are in a righteous state. We're out in the world, we're looking to make some peace, okay? Minding our own business, and someone walks up to us and hits us on this cheek. He may have a perfectly good reason for doing so. If I'm thinking at all, he might be thinking that the, if I'm thinking at all now at this particular point, I'm thinking the law allows me to do what? But I'm not even thinking at this point, am I? You get slapped on the cheek when you're just walking down the street. Are you even thinking anymore? What are you doing? I'm winding up, right? The law says I'm allowed to do what? Say I'm even thinking about it. Say I'm thinking about it. I say, okay, well, I live by God's law. I live by this standard of righteousness. So this allows me then to do what? Whack, hit him again. Hit him absolutely back again. And when I do, he, did, he may not even live by God's law at all. When I do that, now what is he going to do? That second hit, do you think it has anything to do with what he originally hit me for? No, the second hit is answering what? It's answering my hit. And now we're off to the races. Cain kills his brother, is scared, is terrified that somebody is going to kill him. God pronounces, anybody kills you, I will punish him sevenfold. Cain's great-great-grandson comes home one day from work, says, I killed the man for hitting me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, I will be avenged seventyfold. Welcome to the planet Earth. Welcome to the kingdom of the world. Jesus says, what I want you to do is what? Stop the process. And the only control I have over the process is who? Me. So if he hit me on my left cheek, what am I to do? I give him my right one. See, if nothing else, if nothing else happens, I've stopped the process, at least on my account, on my turn. The only, the only space that I have actual control over, the only part I play in reconciling people is my part. And I've decided that I'm going to begin the process right now. Is it work? Does it work? Not all the time. Might I get hit again? Yeah, I might. But at least that next one isn't because I hit him back. We can stop the process by turning the other cheek. 
And if you do, if you can manage that, he says, if you, if you can manage that, something might happen to you. Something might actually happen to your heart. Because he goes on to say, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, do what? Give your cloak. He says, you do this often enough. You act like I would like you to act. Remember I told you before? At least, at least try to do it based on what he says. At least do it just because he says so. You may not feel it, but just try it. Give it a shot. Fake it till you make it. He says, even if you can just do that, something might happen to you. You might actually find that you might get it yourself. So now, and, and, and uh, something comes along, if anyone wants to sue you, so now a lawsuit comes along, which is just a legal slap on the face, isn't it? And they're asking for your coat. And you say, okay, sure. But also what? Give him your cloak. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. They're living at a time where a Roman soldier had no compunction, had no compunction against just seeing you on the street. And since you were a citizen of Israel and not a Roman citizen, he would make you carry his water. He'd make you carry his wood. Jesus says, you got a guy doing that? Walk the mile, but then go the extra mile. Keep walking. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Jesus said, you begin this process. You begin this process of peacemaking, and something may happen to you. It may begin to infiltrate your your heart and go beyond physical violence. It'll begin to attack the violence that exists in most of our lives. I used to say here that it can change the other person or it will change the other person. No, it won't. It gives them the opportunity to. It gives them the opportunity to begin to think about where they're coming from. And if we truly love our neighbor as ourselves, that's what we should be concerned with. Just to give them the opportunity. I can't make them. You can't make them. All of the cheek turning in the world is not going to make them. We're not here to make them. We're here to give the opportunity. All Jesus is saying is, you resort to violence and you've slammed the door on that process. It is not going to happen we look to at least keep the path open. Create the path, keep it open. I can't go much further without thinking of, again, always the greatest, what I consider peacemaker of our time, but just real quick. Dr. King said that was the goal. The goal of the civil rights movement and using nonviolence as a tactic, he said, was not to defeat the white man as an enemy. It was to go after the concepts. It was to go after the ideology of white supremacy. He said it was to awaken a sense of shame within the oppressor and challenge his false sense of superiority. The end, he said, can be reconciliation. The end can be redemption. The end is the creation of a beloved community. Violence slams the door, and it leads to only one possibility. One possibility. I don't know everybody here But I do know that as a uh, percentage of all of us, very few of us have had any sort of physical drama done to us. Very few of us. I'm not sure what the percentages are of actual assaults. If you have, forgive me. I'm not not trying to uh, gloss over that. But I'm just looking at the majority of us. The majority of us, unless we've been to war, have, have rarely experienced on a day-to-day basis actual physical trauma against us. What is the violence that we see or we feel or we get the most? What's the, what is it? It's words, right? It's how we talk to each other. It's how we listen to others talk to others. 
Can words be violent? Oh, you bet they can. We've already been there. Jesus said, you shall love your enemy and hate, and you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, that's just it, is is that if you love, it, 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 it goes where? It goes here. It goes beyond our hands. And by the way, that's what I'm getting at, is that it'll go beyond our tongues, too, if you can think about it. But listen, this isn't metaphorical. This isn't metaphorical. The law will allow you to love your neighbor and hate your what? And hate your enemy. He said, the heart, the inside voice, listen to me, the heart won't let you. Love will not let you hate somebody. And just, and, and just so, so we're clear, <laughs> that I know that this isn't metaphorical is, do you think that there's any possibility, which I do believe there is, any possibility that any people listening to Jesus that day didn't have a little baby brother or sister who was massacred by Herod just about 33 years ago for no other reason except to be born in Galilee? Do you think that they possibly know that it's this guy that Herod was looking for? Jesus knows very well who he's talking to. He's also speaking to a nation that has been under, uh, uh, under the thumb of Rome for 200 years, and they're going to be until the end of proper Israel itself. He's not speaking metaphorically. He knows exactly who he's talking to. Yet the very first thing that we do and then we come across this in the Sabbath school lesson is we what? We immediately go for the metaphor, don't we? But he isn't. Like I said, violence will slam the door on this process. We may not be able to change somebody else's heart. And not may. We don't. We're not the ones who change somebody else's heart. They may not ever come around. But if we use violence, we will slam that door for sure. Jesus says making peace means you make sure your door's open. This is love that only Jesus can give us. See, and that's the thing, is that if I'm not approaching him every day in my state of need, it isn't, it isn't that I begin to metaphor it away. It's that I actually, at the end of the day, when I'm not able to love my neighbor as myself, when I'm not able to love my enemy or even come close to loving my enemy, then that next day when I come to him, I confess that. I tell him that. I can't. See, we have two choices when we're faced with that. We either face the reality, go to the Savior who does love us, even loved me when I was his enemy, and ask him to do something about it. Forgive me for not being able to do it now. Jesus says, you ask me, I will fill you, and I'll send you back out there again. A lot of sore cheeks, a lot of teeth missing, and maybe a lot of blindness but we continue. We continue to come back. We continue to approach him. We don't metaphor this away. Love is not a metaphor. He pours it on. Yeah, he pours it on. The only way that you can be children of heaven is to do this. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So when you're loving somebody, you're loving somebody who at least God loves enough to have on the planet and to give him the same blessings that you have, right? We're all God's children. Or did you think that that rainstorm the other night was just for us? I don't know. There might have been somebody delusional sitting inside their house really believing that the rain is only falling on me and my pagan neighbor, it's not falling on him. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Oh, and Jesus really nailed it with the tax collector, didn't he? Because we just came from the outside voice where where a Pharisee stood, where a self-righteous man stood and said, I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. 
And Jesus is saying in the inside voice, congratulations. If you only love people who love you, you've done the same thing that that tax collector you thought was immoral can do. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's draining, isn't it? How many here feel real good about the way they lived their week this week? <laughs> not me. I, I only had my hand up to ask you. I wasn't holding my hand up. Because we're not even close, are we? Okay, I won't, I'm not going to speak for you anymore. I'm not even close. You probably are. I'm not. Because what I'm wanting to do is retaliate. What I'm willing to forgive is so far short of what I'm supposed to be. Which, as I pointed out, by the way, should take me all the way back where? All the way back to blessed are the poor. I come back the next day after not being able to love my neighbor as myself, not being able to love my enemy, even close. I come back to him the next day and said, you know what? You know what I realized today, Jesus, is that I'm poor. Jesus said, congratulations. I can do something with you. You come back to me poor. You come back to me in need. I can do something. We can do something together. You come back to me with, with piddly little acts of righteousness according to the letter of the law, and there's nothing I can do. We come back to him empty every day. We hate being in need. We hate being indebted. We hate confessing and being forgiven. It's beyond difficult because the sermon are words that have to be applied. If, if Jesus had stayed with those first Beatitudes, just stayed with the Agadah, Adventists would have loved it because that's our sweet spot, right? Bible study. That's what I want to do. I just want to study every day. That's all I want to do. Why? Because I can sit and come up with concepts and I can metaphor love away and I don't have to apply any of it. Jesus says, that's not why I called you. I called you to go out there and make some what? Make some peace. I want you to go to a violent world who knows no peace and make some peace. So where would be the most impact? If, I was, if we were going to do something practical just for, you, just for us today. Since most of us in here do not have a physical violent act that has happened to them this week to act on, where might we move beyond philosophical and actually help us with our walk? And I know you're shocked because I never do that, do I? I love the study. I told you I love studying. I love, I love theologizing. I love doing all of that. I don't really care if you can apply it. I've said that before. You probably can't apply it, and I don't care. Today, I want to do something that you can apply. Is that okay? So as I said, most of us have never experienced prolonged physical violence or abuse from another person. And I pray that we don't. So where does, again, where does most of our interaction come from? Where does most of our trauma come from? Our words, what we speak to each other. How many here ever had something, I was talking about, you know, when me and my little brother were little, how many here ever had something from somebody that you truly loved, say something that was truly, truly hurtful, and you still feel it today? Jesus knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? Okay, he knows exactly what he was talking about. You've heard that it was said of those of ancient times, you shall not murder, for whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you call them fools, you'll be liable to the fire of hell. What is Jesus saying about our words? In fact, the Talmud says, the rabbis wrote a long time ago, that actually words are worse than arrows. Because at least if I murder somebody, they don't have to hear it anymore. I kill them with my mouth, and they may hear it for the rest of their lives. Every day. Just as you all said that you may hear something from somebody in your life a long time ago. 
So murder, according to the law, is a physically violent act that ends another's life. Jesus opens that up to heart. He opens it up to anger and and makes it an anger insult definition of violence. What does an insult do? It injures another. And what do we usually do when we've been insulted? We're coming right back, aren't we? Now, I'm one that has to go home and think about it. I usually don't have a real good retaliation to an insult. I have to think about it. And then the next day, I text them. But it may be even easier to retaliate with an insult than it is with my fist. Isn't it? We do it without thinking about it, don't we? So Jesus says, if you want to stop violence... You have to begin where? You have to begin here. Because he said, you may feel real good that you didn't hit somebody today. You may feel real good that you didn't retaliate somebody who did hit you today. But what about that person that you called a name? What about that person that you insulted? What about that person? What about when they insulted you, you insulted right back? You didn't even think about it. And what is one way, what is the, the one way that I can share with you that we absolutely cannot control our tongue? It is when we are what? It's when we're angry. It's hard enough to control our tongue even when we're not. But it's impossible to control our tongue when we're angry. Let me share with you a biblical example. The Bible almost always describes love from a man's perspective. I've pointed that out to you many, many times. I'm real sorry, ladies. The Bible does not treat you very well. The Bible actually, at times, kicks you in the teeth. I'm sorry, okay? But hang in there with me on this one, all right? Genesis 26, 47, it says that Isaac loved Rebekah. Genesis 29, 18 says Jacob loved Rachel. Judges 16, 4 says Samson loved Delilah. There is a rare time when the Bible records the love of a woman for a man. In fact, it only happens once, and it's right here. Saul's daughter, Michael, loved who? Loved David. Saul was told, and the thing pleased him. See, a short time later, when Michael's father, afraid David is going to take his throne and plans to kill him, it's Michael who helps David escape. The Bible never reports David reciprocating Michael's love. This is the one time it talks about their love, and it's Michael who loves David. Jonathan brings home his new best friend for dinner one night, and Michael's sitting at the table, and she goes, wow, look at that guy. And she falls what? She falls in love. But by the way, he may not have said it, but we know he had to risk his life to have her because Saul was trying to use Michael's love against him. And, 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 David, and Saul said, you can have her. I'll give you my daughter, but it'll only cost you a thousand Philistine foreskins. So David has to now go into an army of Philistines who he already killed their leader and circumcise a thousand of them and bring it back. By the way, he did it. I don't know. I think that might prove that he has a little bit of love for her, right? Later when David is hiding from Saul, he marries her off to somebody else. Saul knew it would hurt him. So he marries Michael off to somebody else. When David comes back, Other husbands would have just let it go. But David restores Michael as his queen when he comes to power. In his book, Words That Hurt and Words That Heal, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin says this, despite what seems to be an intense love at first, their marriage becomes maybe the saddest in all the Bible because within a few years, they are totally estranged. He says, because for one thing, for one reason, David and Michael both suffered from the same character flaw, a sharp tongue that they refused to control when they were angry. Anger. As I pointed out, the one emotional state where it's impossible to control our tongues. See, the Bible describes the incident that triggered them. Remember, they sent, uh, they had, a long time ago, they had sent the ark away to the Philistines. The Philistines had the ark. 
And, and David, when he comes into power, he finally begins to bring it back. And we're told that the first attempt to bring it back, it was a, it was a party. Everyone was, was so happy to be able to bring the ark back. But something happened with Uzzah and, and that, and it kind of put a damper on the party, didn't it? All right. But before that, they were, they were celebrating. All the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. They were really partying, like I said. But after Uzzah died, they kind of went, wow. Then, then they were so scared, they didn't know what to do. So they just left it there for three months. But three months later, David now actually brings the ark into Jerusalem, into the city of David. He resumes the party. He danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. This has a particular part of the story, okay? A linen ephod, which means he's wearing a what? He's wearing a robe, okay? It isn't a garment like he would have worn in battle. It's an actual robe. And it probably only goes below his knees. That's all he's wearing. He's wearing the ephod. The priest would wear garments underneath the ephod, and it would go all the way down, but David is only wearing this ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. He's dancing like he was three months ago. Everyone's happy except for one person, his wife. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her what? In her heart. She's what? She's angry. See, even the, even the, the scriptures, even the, the Old Testament, even the Hebrew scriptures, knows that this is a matter of the what? It's a matter of the heart. She's angry. This is something from within. And instead of just letting it go or maybe counting to 10 or 20 to cool down a little bit, when David shows up, it says David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' maids as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. That ephod is flopping around, and as he was dancing, he was doing what? He was exposing himself. Not the way a king should conduct himself according to his queen. Were Michael's marks justified? Could be. Maybe. But whether or not she was right, the criticism hits David hard because it's what? It's tactless, isn't it? She calls him vulgar. She compares him to any vulgar fellow. She's angry that he was exposing herself in front of servant girls. It was spoken in anger. So what should David do right here if he's a peacemaker? I know what I'm doing. I'm walking away. See, because that's what I'm prone at. I could talk about next. We're, only, we're not talking about me right now, okay? But David retorts to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Notice, he doesn't go after the substance of the dispute. And as many of us do when we are criticized, he went straight for blood. He attacked the most painful event in Michael's life. Her father's failure as king and even his death and says, chose me above your family. He just threw his best friend Jonathan under the bus just to win this fight, just to win this argument. Saul and Jonathan were massacred in battle. They weren't even allowed to bring their bodies home. And David uses this all because he needs to do what right now? He needs to hurt her. It even implies that this was all for God, that he chose me and not your family. 
And I guess you just don't get that. Then he pours it on. I'll make myself yet more contemptible than this. I'll be abased in my own eyes. But the maids of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. You bet I look good for the ladies. And I'm going to keep doing it, Michael. Yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. What a jerk. And by the way, the narrative ends this way. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. Rabbi Telushkin says, why is her childlessness recorded here? Could it be that after so brutal a fight, and there no doubt had been others, Michael and David were never intimate again? So the Bible's point is as clear as it was 3,000 years ago. If a husband or a wife or two siblings or two friends do not restrain their words when they're angry, love is unlikely to survive. We slam the door on peacemaking when we speak when we're angry, no matter how deeply we care for each other. There. One practical application to take away. You want to begin peacemaking in your life? Never speak when you're what? Never speak when you're angry. We may think we can control our tongue, but we can't. By the way, 1 Corinthians says, is it, no, it's Galatians. No, it's not Galatians. It's 1 Corinthians. Paul says there's two ways to sin when you're angry. It says be angry, but sin not, but don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry, but sin not. Don't try to speak when you're angry. Have a period of cooling down, but don't let the sun go down on your anger. After you've cooled down, we got to talk about this, but we're not going to talk about it in a state of anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger because if you never talk about it, it goes down and it turns sideways and it turns to resentment, which actually is worse than anger. Because when resentment blows somewhere 10 years down the road, it's going to blow up with more violence than if you had originally spoke with anger. Believe me, I know what I'm talking about. I don't have a problem with the first one. I get mad, I get quiet. I get mad, I shut up. I get mad, I walk away. My problem is I never come back to address it. So sitting with our tongue, we may not even think about You look at the first couple of chapters on James, and James says that that is actually the worst sin we can commit. That is actually the worst member of our body that we can't bring under control. As a matter of fact, James says, if you control the tongue, you are perfect. So we don't even come close to the sermon, do we? We acknowledge the extreme difficulty of living this walk. It is hard to listen to the inside voice. Why? Because we seek to feel good. We want to feel righteous, but we can't even pull off the most simple acts of righteousness, even in our closest relationships. We are in what? We are in need which actually Jesus says, that's the best place for you to be because people who are in need aren't in danger of ever being self-righteous, right? The one state I can do nothing with you, as long as you're in need, I can always do something with you. The sermon, the inside voice reminds us there's one place where we can't look to feel better for ourselves. Never, ever, we cannot ever look to feel better for ourselves if we're looking at our neighbors, if we're looking at other people trying to feel good about ourselves, looking for bigger sinners than we are, looking for people that we can other, that we can keep out. We can't feel good because we think that we're better than somebody else. We can't feel good because we are right, and they're not. That's the problem with personal holiness. Personal holiness has these temporary highs. 
We, we adopt a, a way of personal holiness. We adopt a particular way of keeping the Sabbath. And it gives us a temporary high. We, the, we're, we feel high because we're doing something that somebody else may not. Can't wait to tell anybody. Can't wait to write a book. But the problem with that is that it doesn't allow us to live the white lifestyle of the inside voice, to bring us back in the morning, to feel our need to have nothing. Poor, mourning, hungering, thirsting for righteousness, everything that we need. All that Paul. So, so what we do is we, 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 need to, we need to get past that temporary high and we need to get at the point to where we do really feel the good that Jesus wants us to feel, that what it feels to have real righteousness. So I'll let Paul sum it up for us today. He says that I know there is nothing good that dwells within me, that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot what? I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. He is acknowledging that he has this sinful nature. Every day I wake up and there it is waiting for me. Every day I wake up and I know what I want to do, but I don't what? But I don't do it. I know what I don't want to do, and I end up what? I end up doing it. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, my heart, my mind. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. My hands who slap or retaliate a slap. My tongue that insults or retaliates an insult. And if you really want to get down to what Jesus is saying, your thoughts can be violent toward others. I used to feel real good about not, not using my tongue to insult or uh, I didn't use my, my uh, hand to, to retaliate. But I went home and I didn't notice, but I would go home and I'd spend the next three, four nights in an anger fantasy wanting vengeance with them. So I was sinning with my what? I was sinning in my heart. The problem was the anger. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then when with my mind I'm a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh I'm a slave to the law of sin, life in the spirit, other words, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's where we begin to feel good. We don't feel good because we're better than somebody else. We feel good because he gives us his righteousness. No condemnation. However, we do have to walk the walk of the inside voice. We do have to walk the lifestyle of a peacemaker. See, the self-righteous says that since I'm not there, since I'm still struggling with all of this, then God must have condemned me because if you really, really were good with God, you wouldn't even be struggling with this. Paul says nothing could be further from the truth. I used to feel condemned every day, which is why I settled for the letter of the law of righteousness because I felt better about myself comparing myself to other sinners. He said, but Jesus took that condemnation away and I no longer needed it anymore to feel good. He says, I count it all as rubbish for the very fact that I can know Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're inside, you, we listen to his voice. Here's where we begin to get a hold of our tongues and our hands and our fists. Here's when we begin to get a hold of our violence, to get a hold of our anger. Did you already mess up today? I messed up in this today. Of course I did. First time somebody changed lanes in front of me, cut me off. 
I'm on my way to church, and what I felt, I'm not very proud of. With me? He's waiting tomorrow. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people that don't feel they deserve it. The people that know that they don't deserve it. The people that come to him empty every day. Poor, mourning, meek, hungering and thirsting. Looking to be merciful. Come to him every day. This is the inside voice. Thank you all for hanging in there with me. It isn't easy. You expected me to get up here and come up with some real good metaphors for this, right? Let us off the hook. The church has been looking to let us off the hook of these words forever. And guess what? It has never worked. 2,000 years. It worked real well for that church that called themselves the Church of Christ. For 1,260 years, it worked real well, the metaphor of loving your enemy. It doesn't work for the church of the Lamb that was slain, Right? How can you worship a God who sacrificed completely himself and then think when he expects us to sacrifice ourselves for somebody else? How could we think that that's metaphor? It ain't easy to listen to, is it? But just remember, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Come forward. Let's try it again. Let's go back out there. I might have to quit driving which means I'll need some rides, which means you'll need merciful hearts. So please, come on. Thanks again for hanging in there and listening to him with me today. 